Inspired by my own journey with mental health, I founded Girls Talk, our own safe space where we share, listen, and support each other. So get cozy and join me, Adjua Burr, for some much-needed Girls Talk. In the 21st century, the opioid epidemic has claimed more than one million lives. The way we've treated addiction in the States and around the world clearly isn't working. That's why I'm very happy to have Sarah Laurel, the executive director of Savage Sisters, a nonprofit organization based in Philadelphia that works to provide housing, rehabilitation and dignity to those in active addiction. When I came across Savage Sisters, I was struck by Sarah's ability to meet people where they're at. No judgment, only respect and love. Sarah, welcome to Girls Talk. I'm so happy. I cannot even begin to say how excited I've been at the prospect of having you on the podcast, Sarah. So thank you so much. Obviously, I know what Savage Sisters is, but I would love for our amazing community to know. So um, could you please tell us a bit about how Savage Sisters came to be? So Savage Sisters nonprofit is uh, a harm reduction and housing nonprofit in Philly. Uh, we have nine sober living homes. All of our residents get free trauma therapy, kickboxing, yoga, and Reiki as forms of therapy. And then we have street-based outreach. And we also have a drop-in center offering showers and wound care to our friends who are experiencing substance use or homelessness um, in the Kensington community. I live and work in Kensington and it started, it actually started in 2017, um, about six years ago when I um, got into recovery. So you're, so you're, wait, you got sober in 2017? I did. Okay. And then I had a brief relapse in 2019. <laughs> um, but yeah, yeah, I got sober in 17 and started the nonprofit. You know, I've been in recovery for nine years this year and I think it's thank you so much and I think as we both know all too well the journey of recovery isn't a linear one and it has its continuous ups and downs and I think there is um isn't a great understanding of the fact that one can go to you know can slip and go in and out of recovery like a multiple times and obviously doing my research on you I know that your journey um, has been a long one, like most of ours. And I believe you went to rehab like 28 times, which obviously isn't an uncommon thing for a lot of people um, in active addiction. But why do you think rehabs continue to have such revolving doors? I think they're not individualized enough. I think the substance use model is very strict and it's, there's not really a human aspect to it. And for me, I did not feel like I was being treated, um, with autonomy Mm -hmm. or dignity or respect. To be quite honest, I felt like a number and I began to kind of identify in that way. I, I, I held on to the identities that were given to me each time I went into a treatment facility or a jail. Um, I just felt my autonomy deteriorating. And as that happens, you know, um, 
I isolated more and I became less involved and interested in the humanity of Sarah. And I think that's what we experience in these, in these systems. Uh, and then, you know, we wonder why it doesn't work out. Exactly. And I think, I mean, you've spoken about it a lot, but, you know, and I think it's, it's, this isn't an all kind of treatment facilities, but something that really spoke to me when I was in um, treatment was addressing trauma at the root of kind of what I was going through. And I know that this makes for great long-term recovery. So I'd love for you to speak a bit more on that. I don't believe I ever addressed my trauma in a treatment facility. I don't even think I was uh, capable of it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, there is the substance use model in America is the, it begins at the acute withdrawal stage, which yeah. is excruciating. <laughs> and I am not functioning well at that point. I am in a very animalistic state and I am in great physical discomfort. And then you get 20 days between 20 and 28 days in that facility to receive any kind of services and it is a microwaved version of uh, i think what it should be the real healing took place for me um when i went through different avenues and sought them at when i was out of treatment in the housing program the first savage house um i i'm still in trauma therapy I also do, you know, a multitude of different things for my spiritual well-being, including Reiki, um, yoga, like physical stuff. So um, I think that we need to kind of not just look at the physical aspect of what substance use is and encompass mind, body and spirit in the healing process, which is what I did. And it's how I have stayed I believe it's how I've stayed away from substances. I am abstinent. Um, and, you know, that's what we offer in our housing program. But I don't think that it is done widely. No, definitely not. Um, and I'm sure if it is done widely, it has done at the probably the most expensive probably like treatment facilities out there. So that that was the other thing. Depending on I'm poor. You know, I, there's 10 kids in my family. We're very, uh, we do not have money. And I was, when I got sober, I was homeless in Kensington. So I had a bag of clothes that I was cut out of in the hospital when I got to the door and people like me didn't get Reiki (laughs) and kickboxing and yoga or trauma therapy. There was a two year waiting list for like the government insurance to pay for my therapy. Um, so we just don't get those kinds of resources unless you come from a certain socioeconomic background. We don't get horse therapy, you yeah, know? Yeah, exactly. Um, so that's why, yeah, that's why we wanted to do what we did. And we were able to find really cool nonprofits that are female founded and led that keep us in a price range that we can afford and allow us to give the 60 residents under our care those modalities. Um, but the system itself is... Uh, it's not built for us. I'll say when I say us, I mean people of a certain money bracket. <laughs> I mean, there are many things that have jumped out in regards to the work you do, but I think first and foremost, it's the your respect for people. They're your friends and they're your community. Um, and I don't think we see that very often. And it's probably one of the many reasons why we're still stuck in this kind of circle of how we treat people who um, are struggling. You know, we don't treat them like humans. 
how do you feel your lived experience with addiction makes you, I suppose, uniquely qualified to help those um, in need? I mean, my lived experience is really all I have. Yeah. <laughs> and it, it, it's laid the groundwork for what we do. I think that a lot of times the work that I'm doing, it, it just happened so organically. I had no intention of doing it. It started with me and two of my best friends in one house and we'd been to jail together. <laughs> you know, we'd seen some not great things together. And then as I started this healing journey, I dragged them along with me. They both died since, um, unfortunately, but so sorry, you know, it was the housing piece of it was started because I experienced being brokered through terrible places. And I experienced feeling less than human at the hands of certain counselors or doctors and also, you know, corrections officers and the parole and probation. Like I experienced that. So I wanted to help my friends to kind of overcome those barriers. It was, I didn't want to do anything large scale. It was like one person at a time that I wanted to just kind of help advocate for or with. And then, you know, when my friends passed away and my, my partner actually died in my arms, I realized that we needed my community. We needed to understand this more. We needed help. And I didn't, it didn't need to start in like a 12 step meeting. I wanted to go back to where I was homeless and just check on people. And I moved back to Kensington as a resident. And my corner was, uh, there was a lot of drug sales and sex trafficking and survivor sex workers. And we, I would sit on my stoop and give them supplies, condoms, lube you know, little wound care kits, shower. I would let some of the girls come in and shower in my apartment and just kind of connect with them. And I'd seen and done so many dark things and like not great things that when they would talk to me, we were able to, like, there, it was just an open communication. I have no judgment of what you're doing. I totally get it. And I think for us, that feeling of acceptance and, mm -hmm. and love no matter what with no agenda or intention to like force you to do anything differently and like just make a joke of it you know like they would tell me a funny story about a john and i'd be like that's hilarious it's not it's traumatic <laughs> but in that moment as two beautiful women standing on a corner just kind of chatting we're exchanging this loving energy of i see you i mm -hmm. hear you i feel you and that's it just that that's all i have and how does it feel? I mean, how do you emotionally take time to yourself? I I get up really early. I'm, yeah. I'm up during in the mornings at like five in the morning. Spirit wakes me up and that's it. Um, and I, I have some rituals. I, you know, I'm, I'm a person in recovery, so I'm a ritual person. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I, you know, I give myself quiet time. I listen to high frequency music. I burn candles and sage and I do, you know, my little... Um, rituals and I get myself prepared for the day. Some days are harder than others. I'll, I will say, and it's probably not the healthiest thing. I am somewhat detached from a lot of it in a sense of like, I don't feel like I have to own their experiences. Mm -hmm. I can, I, I'm not like digesting it fully. Yeah. Um, and I have lost so many people that are very close to me 
that I've gotten to a point with people that I just have to, this is the moment that we have together. This is what I have to offer you if you would like it and need it. Um, and apart from that, you know, like I'm going to keep it moving because I, I'm on, I'm on a path here. Some days, like I said, it's harder than others. Um, and I definitely have crossed boundaries, you know, trying to help people and gotten emotionally drained and I'll take some time for myself and just kind of go to nature. Cause like living and working in Kensington can be really overwhelming sometimes. Yeah. Um, but I have a really amazing sponsor. I have a spiritual guide. She's a shaman and I have a very strong family unit. And so the support that I have, and I think the experiences that I've had, I've kind of learned that it's not about me. Yeah. Their experiences are not about me. And for anyone listening, who's kind of got a family member or loved one who might not be ready, do you have any kind of words of encouragement or advice on, on, on what they should do in a situation like that? Keep it about themselves. Yeah. You can set boundaries for yourself. Um, that's pretty much it. You can't force anybody. I have so many parents that reach out to me with pictures of their kids and they're like, when you find her, have her call me. I'm going to convince her to go to rehab. No, you're not. And people say, oh, my kid's missing in Kensington. No, they're not. They're hiding. So there's a difference between being missing and actively hiding from somebody. Yeah. Um, I have helped countless people get into treatment and the following day they are at my storefront and they want to take a shower. So it, they don't even last a day. I, I just make, I, I joke with them about it. I get it. I understand it. It's hard. Um, and I think when it comes to this mentality, this puritanical abstinence-based mentality of I have to, uh, my ego is telling me that I have to tell you how you must live your life. Exactly. And that is a painful attachment to something that will only cause you suffering. It, you are the one that will suffer if you are insisting upon changing somebody else's path. It will never happen. Um, so you can do that, uh, but you will suffer and uh, no one will be helped. <laughs> And that's your journey, you know, and like, go for it. I see people do it all the time. For me, I have done it enough times and it has caused me suffering and pain and it has distanced me from the person that I am attempting to help. <laughs> so at this point, it is you're an autonomous, self-governing human being. You have the right to put anything you want into your body. I love you regardless. And whatever I can do, Whatever I have to help you with, I would like to offer that to you. Sometimes it's a shower. Sometimes it's a hug. Sometimes it's goodbye. Um, you know, so you have to kind of navigate that path individually and choose your battles. Um, yeah. But I do think we need to, like the stigma around drug use and this idea that it's like, you got to stop. No, they don't. They don't. Mm -hmm. And they won't. You're just going to lose contact with them. Exactly. And it goes back to this, you know, I'm sure you've heard this, but, you know, a homeless person asks you for some money and then you've got some like kind of judgmental person beside you being like, don't give them money. They'll they'll probably, you know, use that for drugs. It's like, is that any of your business? Is it any of my business? Yeah. What, 
they're going to do with $5 or $20 or however much we're going to, you know, it literally, it's like, I mean, the list is endless. The judgment is, is endless. Yeah, um, I don't care what you do with your money. And no, I would exactly. never ask a stranger. I would never, I don't make donations to nonprofits and call the executive director and say, what did you do with my $5? <laughs> <laughs> like, what do you mean? They did whatever they want to do with it. You either give freely with no expectations or you don't give at all. Mm-hmm. So community, how has being surrounded by a supportive community aided in your recovery? The community is everything. Mm -hmm. The connection, the community. We don't have leadership here that is coming in to help. And I learned that uh, in 2019 when I started banging the drum on the situation in my community that nobody was coming to help us and Mm -hmm. screaming. Exactly. (laughs) And they were like, it's the best we can do is paint these walls because that's, (laughs) we're not going to send in medical help. (laughs) Um, (laughs) It was a terrible response. And I, and I had a little, you know, I had a little cry about it. And then I was like, you know what? It doesn't matter because I come from a really big family. um, And my dad's like kind of Middle Eastern background. They're very family oriented. They're very much so like, if something needs to get done, like we do it together, whether we like it or not. Mm-hmm. And I've kind of, I dragged my family into this first, all of my siblings. And it was for, for two years, it was just me and my siblings giving out donations and, you know, doing these things. And slowly people started to see, because this is also our little city of Philadelphia. It's a family. We're all hardworking family people. Mm-hmm. And they saw it and they wanted to help, you know, and they started coming in. Community has kept everything together, not not leadership, politicians, government. Nope, none of that. It's the people here that connect with each other and support each other in whatever way possible that um, is the lifeblood of of me, of who I am, of this mission, of this purpose, and this work getting done. How many beds do you have? Sorry, I know you've said that, but how many beds do you have at Savage Sisters? Um, 64 total. We have nine houses, or 62, um, but our, our houses are full. Um, we do what we can. Yeah. And, uh, the residents are, that's a really fun aspect of it because it's hard to work and see people, um, kind of in such a sad space some days at the storefront, at the drop-in center. And then we have the houses where you're seeing these, like, I mean, it's men and women, but I, I especially, um, I love the women and seeing them come in and like, they're scared and they're afraid and they don't know what to do. And they just become these fierce, empowered, like uh, incredible accountable um warrior women and uh it's great yeah they're they are something to be admired um i didn't know anything about xylazine and i don't think i'm sure a lot of our listeners won't know a lot about it but i'll leave you to explain a little bit more about what is going on not just only in philadelphia but what we're hearing about this drug trank uh, so yes, xylazine is an animal grade tranquilizer. It's not an opioid, but it is the adulterant in the dope supply in our community. Dope being, it used to be heroin. There's no heroin left. It's now fentanyl and xylazine. 
It has been detected in 48 different states, uh, so it's making its way across the supply. But in our community, it's been here very heavily for about five years, and it causes vasoconstriction, which means not enough oxygen gets to a cut or a wound, a small nick on your arm or your leg. And we have our friends that consume this substance, whether they smoke it, shoot it, or snort it, they have open ulcers on their bodies and they can spread it. Once they get infected, it gets really bad. It is devastating our community. It is putting so much pressure on our medical systems and they are not prepared. We have zero studies on polysubstance use of this kind. And Savage Sisters has been dealing with it street level for years. We've we also had to update the way that we reverse over overdoses because it's not yeah. it's not known. I'd love to hear more about that. Yeah. So we and we're the only organization that carries oxygen. And it's the most effective way to prevent and reverse these overdoses because it's a respiratory suppressant. And uh, we've been talking about it throughout the state, and now we're talking about it at a national level because we need to be prepared <laughs> to save lives here. Um, it's very, uh, it's uh, very stressful. I will say that, but um, we have a really amazing group of volunteer nurses that come to Savage. They've updated wound care protocols. We inform people who use drugs what's in the supply. They're very aware of it. Um, we're trying to do our best to um, help our friends right now. And we had, this year is the first time we've had any movement. The White House came to Philly with the ONDCP and, you know, visited a few locations. And we're hoping that that will send some real help in. Um, but our amputations year over year went up 39% in the Philadelphia hospital systems. That's People, I think people sometimes hear that and they're like, oh, that's crazy. No, that's insane. Insane. Yeah. Like 39% increase in amputations. We need to do something here. Um, so we're working on it as best as we can. Um, and that leads me, you, you mentioned it, and I think I've read a lot on it, but again, I'm sure, you know, there's so much that everyone needs to learn about all these things. But, um, the FDA approved the first over-the-counter version of Narcan. Um, and I know you obviously already mentioned that Narcan can't be, it doesn't work in the same way to reverse um, a trank overdose. So we always administer Narcan because yeah. there is always an opioid present. People aren't, oh, okay. so it's, it's mixed in. We always administer Narcan. Um, the over-the-counter thing, it's great that they've done that. Um, it is still not, I would say it's, it's still a privilege because it's, Oh no, a hundred percent. How much is it? 60 plus. pounds. Or like, so. Yeah. So uh, thank you. <laughs> yeah. You know, can I have a drop, sir? But like, <laughs> um, we want it for free, <laughs> Yeah. but that's fine. You know, like we'll take what we can get. It's, it's very slow moving in the progress of, of those kinds of, um, changes for us. I, it, yes, I'm happy that it's now available over the counter. However, how accessible is it to the community that uses substances? Exactly. Like, Sarah, who is buying Narcan then? If the average person living in Kensington 
on the streets is not obviously spending £60 on Narcan. Who is buying Narcan? Should, you know, what I've been thinking a lot about is the responsibility of a bystander. And and if you're seeing someone overdosing, um, but it's like, you know, is it up to us as as bystanders? Is it our mothers buying Narcan? Like, who do you think is now that it's over the counter, it's still sixty pounds. Sorry, sixty pounds of English, sixty dollars. Who is buying it? Who should be buying it? I mean, if you can afford something like that, I would say thank you. You know, great. Yeah. Everybody, every single human being should have Narcan in their medicine cabinet or their purse because you never know when you're going to come across it and need it. What do people need to know about Narcan before kind of administering it? I mean, you there was a lovely part of the mini doc where you really explained like kind of giving people their space, getting to people's level, but it'd be great for us to hear a bit more about that. Well, if, if somebody is in the middle of an overdose, um, administering Narcan is very easy. It's a, <clears throat> it has a little, I always have it with me. <laughs> it has a little red plunger. Um, you just put it in their nostril and administer it. Um, one thing right now I always recommend if you're comfortable doing it is administering uh, rescue breathing immediately following it. Tilt the chin, pinch the nose, two strong breaths, count to five, and you continue that. You do one dose of Narcan every three minutes. Um, and then you would roll that person into a safe position on their side so that if they are to throw up, um, they won't choke on that. And also to make sure that their legs have good circulation. Um, and then, as I mentioned in that clip, you always want to step back and give that person space because it is terrifying to come back from dying and you don't know how much time they didn't have oxygen to their brain. So hold space for that human and know that they might be angry, they might be irritated, they might be scared. Um, speak gently and softly and introduce yourself and see what you can do for them. And if they say go away, then you just go away. That's our recommendation. Thank you, Sarah. I could literally speak to you for about 10,000 years, but I'll only, I'll, two more questions. Um, because we talk a lot about harm reduction and even more so now, well, I mean, not widely publicly because of um biden's harm reduction plan i believe he's you know given like 30 million to this these this new strategy but i know that there's been a lot of black backlash sorry and uproar over certain kind of components of it um crack pipes and i'm sure you know it seems to me that there's a lot of misinformation around it but we talk about harm reduction a lot but i would love for you to give us your definition of harm reduction and what that looks like at a street level kind of version um, and, and, and how you go about that. And what I suppose what it should look like would maybe be the better question. Yeah. So, I mean, pe people have been doing harm reduction, you know, for decades. Yeah. And it, it started to address, it started as um, a way to address the HIV um, epidemic um, for there's like the SAMHSA definition that, you know, it's like beliefs in a system around, you know, lowering harm for people who use substances. And like, we read that when we do a training, mm -hmm. I like to do the quick and dirty version with people because I want you to understand it. I want you to digest what I'm giving you. So how can we be more compassionate? It is meeting people exactly where they're at. It's helping to stop the spread of infectious diseases, it's literally 
just radical love. It is loving human beings where they're at. It is public health. So our way that we do it, we do a syringe program. We do safer smoking kits. Um, we do condoms, lube, and mace for survivor sex workers. We offer food. We offer clean clothing, uh, STI testing, right? So we, we don't want people to spread infections. We want people to be as safe and healthy. We do trainings, fentanyl test strip training, and Narcan distribution. Housing is harm reduction and reducing the harm that individuals can have when they're brokered in and out of unsafe spaces. Um, there is a myriad of ways that harm reduction can come into the world. And I think it all starts with just treating each individual as a human being and giving them the space to be a human and, and say, what do you need? Not take this soggy sandwich and you're welcome. You know, what is it that you need today? And if I have the capability of providing it, I will. A huge part of our work right now is the advocacy and the work around the wounds. That's not anywhere in the whole harm reduction model from the 70s, but it's changing. It's ever evolving. It's meeting those human beings and saying, hey, friend, what do you need today? It looks like you might need a shower. Um, so I think... I am hoping that more people are open to harm reduction and more people are open to just, just love, just love people and not judging them. That's all. I suppose maybe I'll finish it with this. Like, what can we do as listeners to support Savage Sisters in, in any way? We need to actively start re redirecting the narrative of how we talk about people like this. It's they're not zombies. They're not junkies. They're not addicts. They're humans. Mm -hmm. They're our friends. Maybe they're not your friends, but they're my friends. They're <laughs> definitely my just friends. Just be nice <laughs> to them. I know it sounds so simple, but don't be mean. You don't have to be mean to them. Um, just be nice to those humans. As far as savage, uh, we operate our storefront. We don't have like funding for what we do in Kensington. We operate that on community contributions. We have, you can like us on all of our social media stuff, share our fundraisers. Uh, we have an Amazon wishlist with a ton of stuff. We see over 320 people per week that we serve. And that has gotten a lot higher over the past few months. So we are in desperate need of snacks and stuff on our Amazon wish list. And you can donate at the website, savagesisters.org. Um, if you're local, you can come serve next to me. Your ability to love Sarah is palpable. We sit here through a screen and it is incredible. And thank you so much for taking the time to be on the Girls Talk podcast. Thank you for having me. We may have stopped talking, but that doesn't mean you have to. Talk to us on our Instagram at Girls Talk or send us your poetry, essays, stories, artwork, or anything else you want to share at girlstalk.com. This week's podcast was produced by Girls Talk and Wicked Child Studio. Original music composed by Mikey Long. Mad, mad, mad love to Joe Malone London for their generous support of the podcast. And as always, we are always here and we're always listening. I'm Adrua Boa and this was the Girls Talk podcast.